Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present two conversations, the first with programmers Madeline Whittle and Nicholas Elliott about our upcoming retrospective, Never Look Away, Serge Daney's Radical 1970s, and the second with Kleber Mendoza Filio, director of the NYFF 61 Main Slate selection, Pictures of Ghosts, opening in our theaters on January 26th. Beginning next Friday, Film at Lincoln Center presents a series celebrating French film critic Serge Daney and the films he championed, occasioned by the long-awaited English translation of the critic's first book, now titled Footlights. The series runs from January 26th through February 4th and will feature a robust selection of works by master filmmakers, with many presented on 35mm or in digital restorations accompanied by many guest introductions. In a few moments, you'll hear from the programmers of the retrospective, Madeline Whittle and Nicholas Elliott, speaking with myself, digital marketing manager Eric Lures, about how they curated the lineup and the importance of Danny's writing and views on cinema. Never Look Away, Serge Danny's Radical 1970s is sponsored by Mubi. Get tickets at filmlink.org slash D-A-N-E-Y. The life of a true cinephile is one constantly haunted by the dead, as the history of the movies is a corridor of ghosts. Brazilian filmmaker and unrepentant cinema obsessive, Kleber Mendoza Filho's new documentary, Brazil's official entry for Best International Feature at the 2024 Academy Awards, serves as a poignant testament to the liminal state of movie love. It tells, in three chapters, the story of his cinematic world, where his youthful film education took place. At theaters like the Veneza and the Sao Luis, Mendoza discovered a popular art form that would change his life. Today, with the landscape of the city altering drastically, he surveys its empty rooms, now pregnant with memories. This moving and playful film, as much about the architectural and social structures of a city as about the movies that inspire and haunt us, honors the personal spaces that are also the communal lifeblood of our urban centers. Enjoy the conversation from the New York Film Festival between Kleber Mendoza Filho and FLC Vice President of Programming, Florence Amazzini. And remember to get tickets to Pictures of Ghosts, opening next Friday at filmlink.org ghosts. So I guess, Nicholas, uh, just to begin, I, I was curious, uh, knowing that you were credited with the English translation uh, of Footlight's Critical Notebook, 1970-1982. I was curious if you could speak a little bit about how the project came to fruition and why at this you know current moment, if you will, at the end of um, 2023, last month. Sure. Um, the the most salient part of your question is why this current moment? Because Serge Danet was a you know tremendously important film critic and film thinker who's now been dead 30 years. Um, and it's been a, a huge question in Anglophile, cinephile circles about why so little of his work has been translated. And so really the reason I got involved when I got involved is I heard that the great publisher Semia Text was starting to publish Danes books in English. Um, another translator, Christine Puccini, uh, translated the first volume of his collected 
uncollected work, so to speak, um, the cinema house in the world. And so when I got wind of this, I was both kind of bummed because I wasn't part of it and really exciting, excited because Dene means so much to me. And I was able to get in touch with the publisher at Semiotext, Edi El Colti, who just in a wonderfully straightforward way, got on the phone with me and after speaking a few minutes was like, hey, would you like to translate his first book? And so that's what happened. Um, the first book being in French, La Rampe, and which translates to Footlights. And while translating that book, it just struck me in a, in a very clear and evident way that a film program would, would be a natural outcome of this, this project because it's a relatively slim volume. You can really kind of show all the films featured, although ultimately what we did is, is boil it down to like three quarters of the films to get it very essential. And I spoke to Film at Lincoln Center about it and I had the great luck of getting Maddie's interest on it. And that's that's how it happened. And in curating this series as well, you mentioned, you know, still having a pretty substantial amount of the films covered uh, in the publication. Were there certain either themes that you were looking for? Or are there certain like obviously in the case of uh, Nicholas Ray, we have a Nicholas Ray film, The Lusty Men, paired with the Ray slash Vim Vendors, uh, Lightning Over Water. There are a few of those kind of um, connections perhaps between the films in the series. Uh, was there anything beyond just Denis' writing that um, led as like a jumping off point while, while you were curating this? Shall I answer first and then let you, Maddie? Okay. Um, I think that we really let the book do the work in terms of what films, I mean, we knew what films we could consider because we'd made a hard and fast rule. Like we're taking films from this book and that's it. Um, and so then in terms of themes, those weren't determining in what films went in, but it's become very clear to me that there's strong themes within the program. And we tried to organize days thematically, but the most important theme I've really only recently come to recognize consciously um, is World War II and the legacy of World War II. And, and really, which, which to zoom that out, because we're not showing a bunch of war films, to zoom that out is history, is a variety of filmmakers using a, a great variety of means to analyze and consider history. And, and the, the, the crux of that is through World War II, which, which makes a lot of sense because Danet was born in, in 1944 and he considered himself an absolute product of the post-war period and particularly the modern cinema, which comes out of World War II with Rossellini and, and so on. So that's not a surprise. And so we have films that are very straightforward, like Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One, which is a basically autobiographical tale of his squad of infantrymen moving from the invasion of North Africa to the liberation of the concentration camps. And then we have much more formally complex films like Godard's Here and Elsewhere, which is by looking at footage that he shot of Palestinian liberation fighters in the early 70s, trying to understand causality in history. And Sieberberg's Hitler film from Germany, which over seven and a half hours tries to 
find the roots of Nazism in German Romanticism, to put it like extremely simplistically. Yeah, just uh, building on that, I'll say, um, you know, programmatically, we were from the very beginning, I think most compelled by Danae's politicism and specifically his approach to teasing out the relationship between aesthetics and politics and what it means to cast a gaze on something in a sort of rigorous uh, uh, political context. And some of the films are more explicitly political, more explicitly ideolo ideological than others. Um, but I think a thread that connects them is uh, the, I mean, the thread that we're most interested in pulling on is Danae's interest in these films and what Danae saw as compelling material to critically analytically explore and his uh his writing is incredibly urgent and incredibly immediate in its uh uh, uh sort of facility with taking the substance of these films and tying them into the reality of the world in which the film exists uh, and i think that was a common thread or a common element of the films that we did zero in on in our sort of winnowing down of the list of films at our disposal. Um, you look at some sort of very explicitly of the moment films dealing with political issues like um, Nationality Immigrant, uh, Histoire d'Art, a, a documentary account of, of the fight for abortion rights in France in the 70s. And uh, it, it, it in both cases, uh, we were excited to show these films in part because they're rarely screened, but also in part because they really provide an example of the films that Dene championed eloquently in his writing that uh, are both, that might be misunderstood as propagandistic or uh, sort of overly blunt in their messaging when really what his criticism helps to elucidate is the the actual um, deep connection between the the artistry of the films and their message, for lack of a better word. Do you think that's, that's doing it justice, Nicholas? I totally think that's doing it justice, and I'm very glad you said that because, of course, the the political nature of his gaze on the films was a determining factor for us. I mean, there's a reason that we chose to call this series Never Look Away, Serge Danet's Radical 1970s. And, and you know, radical is, is a word that you can apply in a lot of different ways. It's not simply like we are out and out communists making films about burning down the establishment. Really, you could argue that none of the films are that blunt in their, in their politics. It's radical perspectives, but also radical form. And I would be willing to really go to the mat for pretty much any of these films being radical in some way, including, you know, Jacques Tati has his detractors among his my friends, but a film like Traffic is formally radical. It's a feature length film that basically has no dialogue um, and a narrative structure that is on the one hand very classical because it's a journey but on the other hand very contemporary in that 
it really comes and goes in terms of following a central character. It's really a wide shot of, as I put it, you know, continent spanning gridlock. Very true. Yeah. Um, and I was also then curious of, you know, you, you've mentioned that there are narrative films and documentaries as well. I, I was curious in revisiting both nonfiction and, and fiction films for the program. Uh, if there, you mentioned the urgency in his writing, and then also uh, in some ways the relevancy and urgency in some of these films and the topics that they cover. Um, Maddie, you mentioned um, housing rights and uh, abortion rights um, and other topics covered in some of these. And I was just curious as well, the mix between documentary and fiction films, and if they all seem as part of a piece uh, along with the urgency, as mentioned, of Danae's writing. Me or you? I'm I'm open. <laughs> I I'm going to go ahead and make this easy and maybe unpopular argument that there's not that much difference in terms of documentary and fiction here. I mean, especially since these films are so caught up in history um, and thereby politics, I really didn't approach this thinking documentary fiction. I, I mean, even a film that is at first glance as classical as Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala, that's actually based on fact. Dersu Uzala was a real person. He really did have a friendship with this Russian military topographer when he was hired to be his guide. Um, and the film has a, a subtle but unmistakable environmental thread. So I, I think for me, it, it's really thematics that bring the series together and that are expressed by the filmmakers gazes. And, and so I, it, it's hard for me to, to differentiate between documentary and, and fiction with this additional thing that if I'm approaching these films with Serge Danet's thinking in mind, trying to live up to it, what I believe is that he approached every film on equal footing. He considered every film with the same standards. And so it's in the most classical tradition of French auteurism, it's a question of mise-en-scene, how you're looking at people and how you're looking at people if it's a person who's experiencing something in their quote unquote real life or a person who's acting something pretend in front of a camera, it doesn't actually make that much of a difference, that importance of what I consider the respectful gaze. And so I, I yeah, I don't, I don't think of it with that much difference, but I'm very curious to hear what Maddie thinks. Uh, I, I agree. And I think that what this lineup of films really does beautifully is to sort of, um, uh, uh, bolster but also complicate the old saw that all films are documentaries and that every film is uh, documenting something about the conditions of its making and I think that uh, we see that uh, one thing that all of these films have in common is a sort of rigorous application of ideas it's a very idea heavy slate of films across the formats and the genres and um 
each of the film, each of the films really details a, uh, a sort of wrestling with ideological or intellectual sort of exercises or problems on the part of the filmmaker, which Danae then takes up in a kind of dialogue as and in and, and sort of exemplifying the way in which art and criticism can be in dialogue. Uh, I think he he is sort of a model of that mode of wrestling with the ideas of an artist. And because these films are all uh, on a spectrum of communicating an argument, uh, whether through fact or reenactment or pure fiction, there's a... Uh, uh, a way in which they all very actively lend themselves to that kind of critical dialogue. And I think, uh, you know, you'll see across many films in the series that it's difficult to say exactly whether they're documentary or fiction or somewhere in between. There's a, a strong uh, presence of essay films or essay-like films in this lineup between the Godard films, uh, the Straubouillet, the uh, Saberberg, Hitler, a film from Germany, uh, a number of these films are difficult to categorize. And I, I imagine that that uh, uh, slipperiness is part of the appeal for Danae. Yeah, and the slipperiness, you, you just made me think, Maddie, with that excellent point. Um, you really see it in Sidney Sokana's nationally, nationality immigrant, um, which I had never seen until I translated the book. And I, I watched it to be able to make an accurate translation. and it really surprised me. I think that I was expecting, um, I don't know, some kind of agitprop or militant film that was very focused on a specific situation, which is the horrible housing conditions that immigrants in Paris were subjected to in the 1970s. And it is a very, very surprising film. In some ways, it reminds me of Medhondo's Soleil O. Um, Sidney Sakana knew Medhondo, so he was around when that film was being made. And it just, it's a film that takes a variety of formal approaches to dealing with a single problem, which, which actually then makes the problem resonate in a larger way. To have, quote unquote, pure documentary, to have fiction scenes, to have kind of like slapstick scenes. Um, it, it's a very surprising film that I think will be a discovery because it's only been shown in, in New York a couple times. Spectacle showed it for the first time in 2017. And there, there just hasn't been a lot of availability of this film. And I was curious as well, if you could speak on the uh, two, uh, fo two folks who will be in person uh, to introduce some of the screenings. I know uh, one has a very specific connection to the film that they're introducing. And um, we have another filmmaker as well introducing a few of the screenings, if you could speak to that. Are we keeping just, our order of what you want to go, Maddie? Sure, I'll just speak to the the uh, sort of more uh, immediate uh, uh, connection uh, between uh, the uh, cinematographer Ed Lachman, the, the incredibly accomplished and uh, 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 prolific cinematographer who's uh, we've been lucky enough to host it at FLC many times in the past uh, to, to speak about his work. But in this case, he'll be introducing a new restoration of the film Lightning Over Water, uh, a collaboration between uh, Viz Vendors and Nicholas Ray that's really about Nicholas Ray. And uh, Ed 
was the cinematographer on this film and will be joining us to uh, speak about his experience on the production and the film's legacy and the intervening decades. And I think it's uh, just, it's going to be really remarkable to have one of the actual craftsmen of who created the film on site. Uh, I hope that we can sort of draw out of him uh, uh, a perspective on the sort of critical angle that the program is uh, uh, sort of the, if the program is coming from the slant of a critic who wrote about these films and the films are unified in that respect we're interested in sort of placing that discourse in conversation with the artists themselves and this is an opportunity to do that yeah and I, I think it's it's such an honor to have Ed Lockman join us for this because he's someone who worked a lot in Europe in his career. He he worked with Godard, though ultimately I'm not sure he's credited with um, a finished film with Godard. But that that means I haven't had the opportunity to ask Ed this yet. But it's very likely he was in a room with Serge Danet at some point in his life. And if he wasn't, he knows many people who were Godard and Danet were were longtime sparring partners, collaborators in conversation, in thinking. Um, so to have Ed Lockman there and you know is just incredible. And the other person that we're having who's coming for our opening weekend to introduce several films and to participate um, both in a free talk at um, Columbia at the Maison Française around Histoire d'A and in a panel that we're doing, Serge Danet now, um, is Axel Roper, who's a great French filmmaker, um, the director of four feature films that I really admire, but also was a really great critic uh, in the late 90s, early aughts. She was part of the group that founded um, a relatively short-lived film journal in Paris called La Lettre du Cinéma um, that when I was living in Paris at that time, really represented kind of the necklace ultra of cinematic sophistication and, and was also investigating a lot of very interesting filmmakers that had kind of been forgotten. And so Axel to me is a link to the lineage of French cinephilia that Serge Danet embodies. And she's also honestly just one of the most intelligent people I know to hear her talk about any film or any book or any thinker is just a a crash course in whatever she's talking about and so I'm I'm so thrilled that she's going to be here to talk about Dane who who means a great deal to her and, just... and sorry I was going to add one more thing I think what I especially appreciate about Axel and her relationship to Dane is that she understands him as a critic who inspires filmmakers. And I think this is something that we wanna try to get into with the panel is this idea of, you know, rather um, than the critic who gives you an A plus or is your antagonist, someone who's actually participating with you, the filmmaker in furthering cinema. And I think that's something that Axel really believes in is cinema as a, a cause, something that we're all contributing to 
moving forward. And that's why I want her to be here. And I'll just add that New York audiences might be familiar with Axel's work. We've shown uh, several of her films in past editions of Rendezvous with French Cinema uh, at from Lincoln Center, including her most recent one, Petite Solange, uh, just a few years ago. And uh, in addition to that, she was the subject of a retrospective at BAM in 2022, I believe. And uh, so you can, uh, if you're interested in learning more about her and her films, um, you can, you know, easily find you know, a Google search, some of the great criticism that was produced as a result of that uh, retrospective. And um, just seconding Nicholas's observation that uh, the uh, one uh, uh, aspect that we're hoping to really bring to the foreground uh, with the panel, as well as with these introductions, is the way in which the relationship between the critic and the filmmaker needn't be antagonistic. And in fact, uh, when there is a, a relationship of allyship between those two roles, I think that is when uh, both creative forms are at their best. Um, when, you know, whether whether that means being a filmmaker critic in the mode of Axel or uh, the editor Blair McClendon, who will also be joining our panel, um, both of them are artists and critics of the film medium. And so we're really interested in how those two professions interact within one own person, one person's own experience, but also within sort of the broader landscape of the filmmaking world and the film criticism world, um, which Danae was very much um, sort of at the nexus of in his own time and can continue to, I think, inform the way we think about that relationship today. And and you mentioned the Serge Dene now uh, talk, the free talk, um, the panel that will be taking place on Saturday, January 27th at 4 p.m. in our amphitheater. Um, and do you, um, who else is on that panel? You mentioned Blair. Um, I believe Richard Brody is also on that panel as well, along with XL. And, uh, and and Nicholas, you'll be there. Maddie will be moderating it. Um, is that something also that you feel is a um, something very you know worthwhile for those looking to maybe as a primer for Dene or, or someone trying to also get more familiar with his writing um, or looking at like you've mentioned critics being alongside filmmakers as allies? Definitely, I I think you know that is probably an ideal entry point. You know the the challenge that Maddie and I wanted to rise to in, in doing this series is, yes, we're offering audiences um, an array of films that we find very compelling, but we hope that people will be able to engage with this program in a way that they also get a sense of who this guy Serge Danet was and what he thought and why it's important. I mean, I'm not in any way overstating matters when I say that for French filmmakers and film thinkers of today, he remains the towering figure, the way André Bazin would have been for the new wave and the immediate post-new wave. So here he's known by, you know, a marginal happy few. And I think the panel is an occasion to talk about him in simple and open terms. We, each of us on the panel have, I think, very different relationships and level of knowledge um, to his work and to just allow people into 
who this guy was and, and why he matters. And I will say, just making a pitch, you know, the panel will take place on the second day of the series. We're opening on uh, Friday, uh, February 26th, and then the panel will be the following day, the 27th. And I think, uh, you know, for a thematic program like this, uh, but especially one where the thematic connective tissue is text-based, it's a, it's a book, it's a, a written volume, it can be challenging from a programmatic perspective uh, as a film programmer, you know, we are programming primarily films and the focus of the series on one level is the films themselves and we want them to speak for themselves. But on another level, we want to let Danae's work and influence and contribution shine because it's, you know, in honor of him that we're doing any of this and that we're bringing these films together in the first place. And it's thanks to his work. And so I, uh, you know, I, I'm a believer in the power of talks. I have, you know, programmed talks for, for FLC for a number of years now. And I think that this case in particular is a prime example of where programming can be supplemented and enhanced and enriched by having a conversation about it that includes the audience who are coming out to see these films and who may or may not be familiar with Danae's actual written work. Um, but this is kind of, I, I hope, will be a really accessible entry point for cinephiles who might be interested in discovering Danae, but intimidated by, you know, encountering a body of work that they've never interacted with before or um, just, you know, concerned that they won't have an opportunity to dig deep because so little of his writing has been translated into English. So I think I hope that sort of in the spirit of the French cine club tradition, this will give us an excuse and an opportunity to talk about the films and talk about Danae's ideas and just sort of uh, uh, expand the conversation in, you know, literal terms. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds great. Um, so once again, uh, the series is Never Look Away, Serge Danae's Radical 1970s. It will begin next Friday, January 26th and run through February the 4th uh, to see the entire screening schedule, the lineup, um, read the, the film blurbs, which also includes some quotes on the films from Danae. Um, please go to filmlink.org slash D-A-N-E-Y. Tickets are on sale now. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for staying. I'm really uh, proud and excited to bring back to the stage the writer-director, Kleber Mandosafio. Um, you said something very uh, interesting in the introduction about the ghost of Agnès Varda being over you when you were working on the film. Even, I mean, it's a film that I'm sure you had in your mind for a very long time. Um, and you mentioned the word ghost, the movie is about ghosts or, as well and in many different ways. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what interests you in the ghost aspect of the film. We had many films about ghosts, they're very different, but your ghosts are about cinema, they're about 
artists and we'll buy your personal memory as well. So can you start about Yeah, I actually said the uh, imaginary friend. Uh, and, uh, no, no. Well, it's, well, we can open a discussion. It could be the same thing, but I I mentioned uh, an imaginary friend and that's that's what she was. But I think when, you, when you're, particularly when you're lost making a film and you're often lost uh, making films, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, sometimes you you think it's not really working out and then you begin to ask for help and 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 then you might ask you might find help in in a book or or in a film from the past and it so happened that Agnès Varda was one of my imaginary friends who came to help me because uh, she did something along those lines a few times. Um, but you you have not you met Agnès Varda. I met her once, yes, but I, I never really had a, a real conversation with her. But I did meet her. I shook her hand. And it's it's quite an honor. But uh, imaginary friend, as in the relationship that you establish with people from the past, you know, through their work. Um, I also thought a lot about Manuel de Oliveira, the great Portuguese uh, filmmaker. He made two films, uh, Porto of My Childhood, Porto da Minha Infância, which is a beautiful film about Porto. And uh, and his uh, po uh, the film that he made in 1982. The secret film? Yeah, the secret film, which mm -hmm. we all saw after he died, uh, yeah. uh, Sonhos, Memórias e Confissões which is a beautiful film about his house. So, you know, I, I also, for whatever reason, remember the Scorsese's um, Italian-American about his parents. So, you know, these are my friends, you know, but these are films from the past which somehow help you when you're making your own film. So I thought I should mention Vada because she's really special and, and I love the way you and the festival and Dennis put together the this particular combination of that film with this film. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Um, you've you made uh, fiction films, documentary films, and it's the same as Agnès Varda, really. Um, it seemed that the path you took to make this film was sort of um, complex in terms of obviously finding the archive, uh, finding what you would add to it, because there's shooting from your films, uh, mostly uh, uh, neighboring sounds and Aquarius, there's some student films, uh, there's something that's been shot just for the film of you at the end. Um, but it's a way you incorporate it and the path you're taking to put it together that seems quite complex and that could also come while you were writing it or when you were editing. So can you talk a little bit about the process? About Yeah, the, the editing was the key to the whole film because there we I did not have a script for this film. It was just a series of ideas and, and, and memories that I thought I should, I should um, cut together. And uh, when you're making a film like this, you're looking for things that you might find interesting, relevant, and then... You often don't find what you're looking for, but you find some other stuff, which immediately becomes interesting for the for the edit. So the editing really dictated the, what I where I should go. Of course, I I wanted to develop a sequence 
based on the Veneza cinema, which is one of my favorite places uh, in the world, which is now completely destroyed. Um, I wanted to shoot the San Luis in a way that I had never seen it shot in a film. Um, It's right there. And, um, And then at some point I decided to show the family place. Not because it's my family place, but because I made many films there. And I find it fascinating when you see a place that has been shot from so many different angles over so many years with so many different formats and picture quality. And it says a lot about the cinema and, and points of view. And and then that's where I actually found the film when I went into the apartment. I, I was sure that I, I was onto something that I that I was interested in. Uh, talking about the house and then talking about the city and the cinemas in the city. But you incorporate a lot of very personal things uh, from you, your life, your family. Mm-hmm. And the tone you use for it doesn't bring, it brings love, but it doesn't bring like nostalgia really. Like it's not, mel- it's not really melancholic. It just brings you f- deep feelings. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your intention on finding the exact tone where it, yeah, you, you feel like you relate to it and it's life, it's, it's past, it's in the past. The way, that's the way it is. And it's, it's, but it's not like, yeah, it's not like, sentimentally melancholy or something it's very tricky because uh, 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 I mean the film has been very well uh, received of course uh, it's during of course yeah of course n- well <laughs> no, not of course but now that you know it's been on release after seven nine eight weeks uh, I can say of course yeah because it's been doing well in Brazil and, and theatrically even uh, but uh, sometimes uh, people complain that uh, it's a, a little too sentimental, and I, yeah, I completely understand where that comes from. But um, well, you can tell them I disagree. I don't find it sentimental. <laughs> Florence disagrees, and I agree with her. Yes, um, but it's tricky because uh, you're talking about love and uh, and the past and time, um, and at some point. I what I told uh, I told Emilia a few times, and I told also Mateus, the editor, that I could go. For example, you meet a friend you haven't seen in ten years, eight years, or fifteen years, and you will inevitably talk about life if you have the time to talk to your friend. I can go there, and I think it's a beautiful thing, but I I will not go where the industry of nostalgia usually goes because it's quite easy for you to make a film or a television series where you uh, push all the right buttons to activate commercial nostalgia. So that I find really kind of complicated and I'd rather avoid that. At the same time, towards the end of the film, I came to realize that once you discuss certain things in cinema it could be love it could be human relationships and the passing of time there is a certain tendency in cinema to take you to the melodrama i'm also fine with that up to a certain point what point is this i don't know i can't really establish it's not mathematics 
it's just a question of how you feel and and how you feel about the images that you're showing and 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 the ideas that you're presenting as a person as an artist so i'm all right with um with a certain mellow tone that the film has but uh i can tell you that all of it is very honest you know and uh, particularly talking about uh the house where i spent most of you know most of the years in my life and and of course the house where my mother used to live and and we lost her very early all these things are very kind of um uh tricky when to to bring i showed the film to my brother in april just before can he knew i was working on a film called uh, pictures of ghosts but then i i invited him to see the film and it took him about a week to recover because he didn't know he wasn't really prepared to see uh what he saw in the film and but then he came to terms with with what the film is and what it means for him so it 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 is very tricky but uh i mean it's tricky you make a film about the past yes. in every possible ways yeah. uh, all the films you've seen all the cinema you've seen where you lived where your family was yeah. your your family um but you keep the tone uh just right above the it's good to hear that the, yeah well i don't know you can tell other people <laughs> who disagree <laughs> um the end of the film on the other end is very pleasurable mm-hmm. um can you talk about how that came about and why <laughs> don't you have a tv series <laughs> or a netflix show or something because you're quite amusing in it and uh, the dialogue with a taxi driver would remind do you know the actor luis rego it looks exactly the same yeah, yeah totally i was for ever with him <laughs> except that he's not Brazilian. Well, I've been making the film for seven or eight years and I always wanted to end the film with that sequence. Uh, I had it in my head. I never wrote, I never sat down to write the sequence. Uh, even down to the to the track uh, Rise by uh, Herb Alpert, which I think is a wonderful track. I really like that track. Um But then on the day we were going to shoot with all the equipment and all the money being spent and the actor and I I got cold feet because I hadn't written a dialogue and I don't think it's fair to get to the shoot and say oh let's improvise something just say whatever you want you know it's not I don't think it's fair for the actor you know uh, the producer was screaming <laughs> yeah be brilliant and and have a, an interesting dialogue and uh, so I sat down to write uh, a dialogue and then the immediately this idea which i had never thought about came and i wrote about his superpowers which are completely useless useless superpowers it's almost like a party yeah, trick i don't think it's useless you ended up putting the security belt <laughs> which you were not wearing before <laughs> I w- <laughs> yeah bad example yeah i i tell my kids put the seat belt yeah. but you don't use it in a film <laughs> uh and then i wrote it and then i showed it to emily and she seemed to uh, well i liked it and she seemed to like it and uh, i sent it to to hobbins the actor and he seemed to like it and and then we shot it and it was the first time that i actually acted uh, in anything um 
so I, I really made it easy on myself. You know? <laughs> I, I I just played myself and and had the uh, nice lenses <laughs> on myself. Yes. <laughs> um, to go back to the short film and Agnes Varda, if you were in the position um, to meet with her or Pasolini, do you think about what type of question you would want to ask each of them? Because she talks about, um, you know, like, well, he talks about, like, fiction uh, is the best documentary, and mm -hmm. then the art, the uh, imagery of Catholicism, which is really from Italian paintings, which is also something you talk about in the film. Yes. So these are, like, actually, like, Great answers from yeah from recurring Pasolini. themes. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. Uh, with I mean, you're a, I'm a filmmaker, and I get to meet uh, wonderful people in different situations. Others not so wonderful, but it's part of what it is. Wow. And um, and then the wonderful we, we ones. We know them. <laughs> yeah, the wonderful ones. Uh, you end up having good conversations, which might be formal conversations or just conversations about life and and. Uh, And some of them turn out to be interesting exchanges about how you see, <laughs> how you make films. But um, I think it's really wonderful to hear Pasolini speaking French. And uh, I love when she asks, uh, what strikes you most about New York City? And says, the poverty. <laughs> If he saw it now, he would be really Yeah, uh, it's, it's such a fascinating... And then it's, of course, it's the New York Film Festival, where I happen to be right now with the film. Mm -hmm. But you go back to 1966, two years before I was born. And these people are living their lives and thinking about cinema and... and uh, Nine years later, he would be dead, uh, brutally killed. Mm -hmm. And Vada went on to live a full life and become such a such an inspiring. Uh, yeah. So the that little film is not only that film; is everything else that it brings. You know, those mm -hmm. people on the sidewalk in New York City, the way the camera mm -hmm. kind of moves with them, and yeah, it's a it's a when Dennis. Uh, told me back in August, I think, that that film would screen with pictures of ghosts. I was really moved. You know. mm -hmm. I mean, the use of the music also, since Agnes was close to Jim Morrison. Yeah, very close. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had a choice to pick someone in the lineup this year to make your own short film that we would play in 30 years, mm. do you have any ideas? That's a great <laughs> question. Then you're going to need, like, what's the lineup? Who's here? <laughs> Where can we shoot? My mind Maybe has gone... Maybe he's freaking out, like, why? I need money for this. My mind has gone blank now. Um, it's a great lineup. Just Wang Bing, Fred Wiseman, Jim Jarmusch. I think uh, if I could get uh, Wiseman and Jarmusch together and ask them a few questions, would be... Okay. Would be a very strong combination. I think we need to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It would be beautiful. Yeah. yeah. They're both here. I was in a panel with uh, Fred Wiseman, and uh, it was uh, it was a good moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. No, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. 
And he's 94 and still doing Q&As. Yes, and he then. was at the party last night. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> he has more energy than all of us. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, superhuman mm-hmm. and beautiful. Uh, I think we have time for some audience question. Um, my question is about the connection, I guess, between you and your mother, who you know was a historian, and you're kind of acting as a historian in this film. Um what did you take from your mother's experience to this film, if you did take anything, um, sort of, of her career and her work? Well, it's a great question, but it's, uh, I think it comes naturally that since I grew up uh, around her and she was a historian and she was always talking about how, um, how a, a lot of the questions we ask today can, can be answered by history and can be answered by uh looking at records and, and documents and and she really believed in um recording audio um interviews and asking the people who not the the people who are not usually asked the questions because they are she 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 really believed in asking workers about life in society not the you know the bosses and and the people who um give out the cards uh, not the you know the the superiors but asking the the workers and 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 she made a she made a she a lot of interviews with that and uh, and i really think it's uh, it's a beautiful idea in terms of history and looking at uh, social history uh so i can only imagine that she impacted my life uh, in an epic way, but uh, I I can't prove any of that mathematically, except maybe um, looking at my myself and and my brother, who's an architect, and and we, I think, uh, yeah, we we have something that was given by her. I think I'm quite sure. You know, it's a good feeling. She was uh, she was cool. Yeah. Does your brother live in Recife? Yeah, yeah. We live close. Uh, There was someone else right there. Um, Does it ever scare you, like the the future of Recife and like the future of all these malls taking over and all these destructions and constructions and everything? How do you feel? Uh, of course, I mean it's uh, yeah, it's it's something that I I keep going back to because it's an interesting theme, you know. Uh, uh, ugliness is <laughs> generates tension, I think, uh, in terms of living life in a city. Uh, um, but of course, I I also have reasons to be optimistic. I mean, Hisif is a is a city which managed to uh, save uh, a place like the San Luis Cinema. And not many cities around the world have done that, you know. They, at some point, they couldn't save anything and everything was destroyed. So we have the San Luis and we have really young people coming in and going, wow, I never thought this existed. Uh, and it has impacted them in some way. It has impacted the way they look at cinema. And uh, and not only the San Luis, but we also have another one 200 meters away, which is from 1919, a wonderful place called the Parque, 
recently restored. So we have two great places which really tell you about the past and the, about entertainment and about the industry and about history. So that's one way of looking at things. But, uh, but the city is really, is really crazy in, in, in how it's been demolished, essentially, which is something that happens you know, in Latin America, in North America. I think a lot of demolition goes on in the U.S., New York City. I mean, look at New York City. It's it's an amazing city, but it keeps changing all the time. You know, it's always it's always uh, something new being built, and uh, yeah. But that's how, that is the that's how things go. You know, time passes and things change. And I have come to look at these things with a certain level of um, not resignation, but. Uh, Cities change. Acceptance. <laughs> yeah, cities change. And sometimes the interest there are interesting changes. Most of the time, they are terrible. Yeah. But yeah. didn't you mention that Recife built a harbor about 20 years ago and now you can't go to the beach at all? Yeah, it was uh, 35 years ago. A new port was built uh, 45 kilometers south. And that's messed up the whole um, ecosystem and then the sharks which used to feed there on fish they came north and now we have a, a, a huge uh, shark problem in Recife. Yeah, so it's like a revenge of nature kind of thing so in 35 years we've had uh, maybe 40 deaths which is a lot you know? yeah yeah It's, it's worse than the rats in New York, I think. We <laughs> <You know? laughs> don't attack that much. Yeah. We eat the pizza. It's quite a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was there any governmental support in the restoration, the preservation of the cinemas, or just individuals? Oh, always, yeah. That, that's the only way that, that it can happen. In fact, uh, it happens in France also, uh, in, in Europe and And uh, the Saint Louis was saved because it was bought by the local government, state government. Okay, so but it's not the federal government. Not federal. Okay. It was state okay. government, and the other one, it's a municipality. The the city decided to save it. Okay. I think we have time for a final question. There's yeah. someone here. There's a microphone running to you. Um, I love that passage um, that you said. I think a government official um, spoke about the, or, or someone mentioned that where all the film distribution centers didn't exist. And I, I love that you use that to make a bigger point. But is there more to that? Is that just someone not looking at history? It was not a government official. It's just uh, um, the building's uh, super. I just went up to him and said, uh, any other film companies uh, upstairs? It's No film companies here. Oh, but there used to be. I, I remember. So, no, I've been here 10 years. No film companies ever uh, existed in this building. You must, you must have gotten the wrong buildings. <laughs> no. <laughs> I remember. Warner Brothers was here, and Universal Pictures, and Metro, and Columbia Pictures, and Fox, and I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, You can erase <laughs> the past from a city very easily. Mm -hmm. That's 
that's really i mean as you get older it becomes more dramatic you know Daniel, that's why we need you and your memory to make sure it really existed. You're going to have yeah. to do it in many other cities. Well, yeah, but my my heart is in is in that particular city. Uh, mm -hmm. My one of my worst fears is to make uh, mechanical automatic films. I could maybe go on and do a whole series on Rio, Sao Paulo, and Mexico City and New York City, but it well, there you go. That's like a few already. Yeah, but it, it, it's, uh, it takes a lot of um, energy and uh, maybe somebody else can. You know? There are some good films done about memory and cinema. We have to wrap it up for tonight, unfortunately, but thank you so much for being here and talking thank you about for the host. film. Thank, thank you. So thank you very much. much.